0: I've been thinking about how the idea of being kind to our loved ones is not just about how well we've handled our death paperwork. Another form of kindness is to take care of ourselves while we're alive, to make an effort to age well, be less of a burden. And when I say age well, I mean aging well in all dimensions, physically, mentally, financially, socially. So this year, I will do more episodes on all aspects of aging well. Right now, I'm personally thinking a lot about preventing dementia. I believe all of us need to think about it, no matter our age. Why? Well, not only because the rate of Alzheimer's is skyrocketing, but also because by the time symptoms show up, it's too late to do something about it. See, one of the problems is that we tend to think of Alzheimer's as a disease of old people, because that's when we start seeing its effects. That's how I thought of it. But then I read Get Sharp by Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and I was struck by this quote. Diseases like Alzheimer's start 20 to 30 years before any symptoms develop. In fact, one researcher he interviewed goes so far as to say, Alzheimer's disease may be more aptly termed a younger and middle-aged person's disease. A younger person's disease. A middle-aged person's disease. We need to change how we think about Alzheimer's. So no matter what your age, this episode will be relevant to you. And because of my own interests, today's episode will start by focusing on the impact of alcohol on the brain and how it contributes to dementia, and end with options for tasty alternatives that still feel grown up. Hello and welcome to Dying Kindness, the podcast for people who are going to die someday, I'm Sianna Stewart, and I'm going to die someday. Spoiler alert, you will too. So let's all do what we can to make key decisions now in order to be kinder to the people we'll leave behind. That's a dying kindness. I know many people are dealing with elderly relatives with different forms of dementia. Mostly Alzheimer's, but other types of dementia too. Dementia is on the rise, partly because we've become more successful at keeping people alive longer, even when they have significant illnesses. Medical advances can keep bodies alive, but sometimes it seems the brain can't keep up. On the other hand, I also know many older people whose brains are still sharp. I think about the differences in their quality of life, how much more vibrant and alive they are. I also think about how much easier it is on their loved ones to care for them even to care about them. This leads me to a desire of being able to stay not just independent as long as possible, but also, more importantly, connected to others and as mentally sharp as I can be for as long as possible. Before getting into the nitty gritty, let's talk a little bit about why memory is important and the biology of how memories are made. Don't worry, I'm not going to get overly sciencey. We just need some foundation here. When we think about memories, sometimes we think of them as simply records of our past, factual data that fills in our chronology. Some memories are pleasant, and we want to remember them. Some are not good, and we'd rather forget them. In this view, memories are just there to answer the question of, what did you do? But the truth is that memories are so much more than that. Memories tell us who we are. Our memory holds our identity who is in our community, what we do and don't like, even who we love and why. Memories answer questions like, why did you do that? What did you feel when you did that? And why are you the way you are? Dr. Sanjay Gupta is a neurosurgeon and the chief medical correspondent for CNN. In his book, Keep Sharp, Build a Better Brain at Any Age, he writes, Memories are what make us feel alive capable and valuable. The function of memory is to help build and maintain a cohesive life narrative. So really, having access to our memory is what connects us to our lives. It's funny that we say memory in the singular as if it's one thing. Certainly, it feels like a single thing when we're remembering something. But the truth is that our memories are not located in a single place in the brain. Memory is better described as an active collaboration between multiple parts of the brain, pretty much the whole brain. When we remember something, multiple parts of our brain light up with the effort to reconstruct a memory from all kinds of things related to each of our senses, how we interpret the information we have, our past and current emotional states. So many parts of our brain are involved in every memory. So taking care of our entire brain is key to keeping our memory intact. As Gupta explains, the process of memory has three main parts, encoding, storage, and retrieval. Encoding means creating the memory in the first place. Storage refers to our ability to keep the memory, and retrieval is about being able to call up a memory when we want it. This is important because different things interfere with each of those stages, And anything that interferes means damage to our memories. And one of the most common causes of interference is alcohol. I need to give a caveat here. Because of my personal history, I am hyper-alert to anything that warns against alcohol, possibly more likely to believe bad things than others. See, my dad died three years ago after having diabetes for decades, which he developed as a result of heavy drinking. Several years before that, when he was hospitalized after a surgery, I learned his brain had shrunk due to his alcoholism, that parts of it weren't working anymore. That definitely freaked me out and started me thinking about my own drinking habits. I still didn't stop, but I just started thinking. In 2018, my dad had a heart attack and ended up in the ICU. Coming out of that, he had full-blown dementia. ICU delirium is very common. But it usually resolves within a few days. Dad's didn't. It wasn't a temporary delirium, it was permanent dementia. And it got to the point that he was a danger to himself and my stepmother. We had to put him in a care facility, and he died a few months later. You'd think after that I might have stopped drinking, but no. I cut back at the time, but like so many others, I started drinking more during the early days of the pandemic, particularly after moving in with my aunt, who is a chronic drinker. I simply slid into joining her habit of a cocktail before dinner, wine with dinner, and sometimes an aperitif after dinner. But last year, something clicked and I started cutting back. I'm not sure what shifted. Maybe it was the stress of having to handle some major issues on behalf of my aunt to protect her. Maybe I'm getting worn down by watching her cognitive decline, hearing her daily frustrations over simple things that used to be so easy for her. Maybe it was having the world start opening back up and my starting to think about the future again. Whatever the cause, living with my aunt as her caregiver is giving me the final push to prioritize taking care of myself, and that includes doing whatever I can to prevent my own dementia, because, frankly, it freaks me out. In the middle of last year, last August, the Huberman Lab podcast released an episode titled What Alcohol Does to Your Body, Brain, and Health. For those of you who don't know, Andrew Huberman is a neuroscientist and a tenured professor at Stanford University. He does a good job explaining the current status of scientific research and provides links to the papers that he references. The episode is long and covers a lot, and if you're interested in hearing it, I'll put a link in the show notes. But right now, I just want to pull out some highlights that are specifically related to dementia and cognition. One of the first things you need to know is that the brain is largely sealed off from the rest of the body by what is called the blood brain barrier. It's a combination of cells that prevents most pathogens from entering the brain. It lets in very select things like water and oxygen, but generally protects the brain from bad things coming in. The second thing you need to know is that alcohol is both water soluble and fat soluble, which means that it can pass into all the cells in the body and can pass through the blood brain barrier. In fact, the reason we feel drunk is because alcohol passes so easily into the brain and starts to affect the brain's processes. In particular, according to Huberman, it tends to bind to certain brain areas with a slight predisposition to the prefrontal cortex. That's the part of your brain that is associated with what's called executive functioning, including planning, decision-making, and short-term memory. So alcohol is getting into your brain and messing with a part that is involved in the first thing we need for memory formation, encoding. This appears true both in the biology sense and also because it affects our ability to pay attention. And as Sanjay Gupta points out, you have to pay attention to properly encode memory. Put simply, you must have an awareness of what you're experiencing. Sure, we all know that people can get blackouts from excessive drinking, but I'm talking about how even a little alcohol can make us more easily distractible, less able to pay the kind of attention needed to properly encode memory. Now I want to talk about a term that some researchers use for Alzheimer's that made me extra nervous. Type 3 diabetes. Dr. Gupta wrote that some researchers have been calling it that because so often Alzheimer's involves a disrupted relationship with insulin. If you know anything about diabetes, you know that it's all about a disrupted relationship with insulin. Type 2 diabetes is largely caused by diet, and people with type 2 diabetes are at least twice as likely to develop Alzheimer's disease, according to Gupta. Not only that, some studies are showing that people who simply have high blood sugar have a higher rate of cognitive decline than people with normal blood sugar, even if they don't have diabetes. Given my father's history, this certainly caught my attention. The reason I'm connecting this to drinking alcohol is because in the short term, alcohol interferes with the liver's ability to produce glucose, resulting in low blood sugar. In the long term, chronic drinking can also reduce the body's sensitivity to insulin, which triggers type 2 diabetes. That's what happened to my dad. Alzheimer's as type 3 diabetes. That is definitely something I want to avoid if I can. Lastly, I want to talk about one more scary biology thing before I go on to something fun and tasty. Let's talk about neuroinflammation. A ridiculously simplified explanation of how our immune system works is that we have some cells that get alerted to harmful things inside the body, and they send out an alarm, which causes other cells to swarm into the infected area to isolate the foreign substance and to try to gobble it up so that it can then be safely expelled from the body. Inflammation is basically the process of swarming cells to fight infections. Sometimes this immune system response goes on for a long time and may attack the body's own cells even when there isn't an outside danger. This is chronic inflammation. And chronic inflammation is associated with many diseases, including Alzheimer's. In fact, when Sanjay Gupta was writing his book, he discussed various theories of cognitive decline with a lot of researchers. He learned that many of them don't hold up or they have serious challenges. But the one thing that was consistent is that inflammation is strongly correlated with dementia, particularly Alzheimer's. What does this have to do with alcohol? Well, surprise! Alcohol messes with the immune system response and is associated with inflammation in multiple systems. I don't know that it's been proven that alcohol is directly related to the kind of inflammation that is associated with Alzheimer's, but it all makes me cautious, and it fuels my desire to go at least mostly, if not entirely, alcohol-free. There's more stuff that's related to the other two phases of memory, storage and retrieval, but this isn't a science podcast, and I think you get the idea. I recommend reading Gupta's book and listening to the Huberman Lab episode if you want to learn more. In the show notes, I'll link to both of them, and to a 2020 study that I found interesting from the Journal of Neuropsychiatric Disease and Treatment that is a systematic review of 25 years of studies in PubMed. Now, finally, we're getting to the tasty fun part of the episode. I'm recording this partway through dry January, a month off from alcohol. One of my difficulties in giving up alcohol is feeling like I didn't have very interesting choices if I wasn't drinking it. I don't like sugary drinks, and most virgin drinks at bars are super sweet concoctions where they simply don't add the spirits and don't do anything to balance out the flavors. Or I get offered sodas, which I don't enjoy. I usually end up with some kind of bubbly water, sometimes with bitters added just to give it some dimension. So imagine my delight in learning that there's an alcohol-free bar right here in San Francisco. It's called Ocean Beach Cafe, and it's way out by, you guessed it, Ocean Beach. Joshua James opened it in early 2020, bad timing pandemic-wise for a bar to open, but he struggled through and now the word is getting out and it's growing. I was both excited and skeptical the first time I stopped by for their alcohol-free happy hour. I told them that I didn't like sugary drinks that I liked bitter and earthy flavors, that my favorite alcoholic drink was a Boulevardier. If you haven't had one, just know that it's a whiskey-based drink that I like because it's seriously bitter.
1: I'm, I'm sure I probably lit up. You probably saw me light up when you were like, I kind of like things that are more like bitter and herbal and complex. i was like, yes, let's go. Cause that's our favorite stuff too as bartenders and just like, you know, the adult palate.
0: That's Josh.
1: My name is Joshua James and I own Ocean Beach Cafe.
0: Josh started working right out of high school and soon decided he wanted to be a bartender.
1: Yeah, I chose bartending as a career, I think, 17 years ago. Um, Straight out of high school, I started bussing tables and I was like, this is awesome. And then I started waiting tables like three months later. I was like, this is even better. And then I started uh, brewing beer at a brewery. This is all on Oahu. I, I grew up in Hawaii. And the bartender was just so cool to me. And I was like, I want to do that and like have that hair. And (laughs) I never got the tattoos or the piercings, but um, I knew that I wanted to be a bartender. And then, yeah, when I was 23, I got my first gig. It was in Alaska. And then I was like, yeah, this is is what I want to do.
0: Then in his mid-30s, Josh started to get tired of the life and thought about doing something else. He also started reconsidering his relationship to alcohol overall.
1: You got to turn like 35, 36 and be like, I don't want to bartend anymore. I'd like, I'd like a career change and I'd like to figure out uh, what that could look like. And, um, and then some wreckage along the way that was like, all right, I'm taking a year off drinking to see what happens. So that was the big one for me. And I would recommend it to anyone. Uh, I know there's a lot of fear around taking out something that could be a big part of your life, you know. Even more reason to go for it and, and 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 go see what happens.
0: Josh started his year off in December 2019. He was accepted into an inpatient rehab facility called Friendship House in San Francisco. Among other things, there he learned a lot about alcohol's effect on the brain and overall health.
1: They had two libraries in there, and I just thought it was picking out all the books that was... That was teaching me that stuff about alcohol's effect on your brain and body is absolutely fascinating to me.
0: Can you remember anything specific about the effect that like stuck with you?
1: Yeah, there was a few of them when they showed like the brain scans for 6 months no drinking, 1 year no drinking and 2 years no drinking. Your brain just lights up after 6 months. It's mm-hmm. from what it looked like. And then 1 year how much different it looked like between those two things? And then I remember when I hit the six-month mark, like, things were different. And I remembered that image of the brain scans. That was just a mindset shift for me. It's like, yeah, let's, let's go to that year.
0: At Ocean Beach Cafe, I also connected with Danny Meeks, a self-described sodden waiter turned NA enthusiast, with a family history that led him to question whether or not he wanted to keep drinking alcohol.
2: So, yeah, I just... Have had multiple family members that have been affected by, have had brain damage uh, that is either directly or correlative to alcohol.
0: Danny was quite a drinker himself until he quit about a year and a half ago.
2: Definitely, I had the genetic and the sociological uh, predisposition to extreme alcoholism myself. And it took me until I was about 40 to actually stop drinking, but drank just as heavily as, as my dad did and my uncle and my grandfather, I'm assuming. I wasn't really there most of the time. I, I mentally was feeling very checked out and just incoherent in general, even when I wasn't drinking. Um, and sure enough, when I stopped, it, you know, I just felt like I stepped into reality full time.
0: When I asked Josh and Danny what changed for them when they stopped drinking both mentioned the same thing.
1: well productivity levels are often a lot higher. one of the biggest things that happened in that experience of not drinking for for more than 6 months was productivity. i when i would take 2 to 3 weeks off of drinking which i probably did 4 or 5 times in 2019 and 2018 there were times like in those 2 or 3 weeks that like i was super productive and i didn't know how much of a high i got off of that like how it made me feel was like Very significant. I had always had
2: a um, desire to try entrepreneurship and try opening up my own business or to be like freelance in some way, Uh, but it never seemed like an attainable thing. And within three months, I think, of not drinking any longer, I had my own consulting business and I was doing management consulting at a wine and spirits Mm. shop, which led to me building a wine bar from scratch. And I couldn't have done any of that Mm. while still drinking. I would have have just messed it up or never seen it through to the end. So a lot has changed.
0: (laughs) Danny experienced a number of other changes as well.
2: My mood is more stabilized. My nervous system is stabilized. Um, I found out six months after I stopped drinking that I had Hashimoto's and my thyroid didn't work any longer. Wouldn't be surprised if that was alcohol-related as well. Um, But, you know, wouldn't have never discovered that if, you know, I could have just written off all those symptoms as hangovers Mm -hmm. or lack of sleep or so on and so forth. So
0: The now alcohol-free Danny was starting to lose interest in running his wine bar.
2: I was spitting everything out. I wasn't partaking with my guests or, or friends or doing anything wine-related outside of work. So I was like, okay, this non-alcoholic category is expanding. Let me see who's out there doing it, like going for it.
0: That person was Josh.
2: Josh built this really special place, this very unique place, and it is the first of its kind, and him... He had never owned a business before not only is he starting his own business for the first time But he's opening in a category that hasn't existed in this way so He you know as anyone would do kept building up more and more ideas and more and more ways to bring in revenue and more like um, Arms to the to the business if you will and then quickly discovered that it was not a one-person job
0: Together, they have high hopes for a future that has a lot to offer adults who want to be alcohol-free, whether for life or just for a while, between times when they're drinking. They're part of a different conversation around alcohol than the one that I'm used to. They talk about being AF, alcohol-free, or NA for non-alcoholic. They don't use the language of being sober.
1: When I tell people these bottles are all non-alcoholic, they're like, oh yeah, for sober people. It's like, no, that's... I totally understandable. That's the first thought, but it's not actually problem drinkers. Problem drinkers are actually um, a small portion of the spectrum of people drinking less or not drinking at all. It, you know, the whole stigma with being a non drinker in a group is going away. Mm-hmm. It's actually going to be admired. So, so that's happening. It's trending. People are participating in it. People are saying, oh, I'm not drinking right now. And their friends are like, oh, I'm not either, you know, like that's totally happening right now. Uh, in
2: Australia, they have this thing called a wedge. Like you could go out drinking and in, in between each drink, you could order a non-alcoholic drink. You're mm-hmm. still making a decision to control how much ethanol gets into your body. Like you don't have to make a decision to be a non-drinker. You can own your moment that you decide not to have an alcohol uh, an alcoholic drink,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you know, um, but being a part of that change where non-drinking is destigmatized, I think is the main drive.
0: Yeah, I'm seeing it much more linked to like, oh, I'm generally athletic, you know, or I want to stay fit, um, or I'm going into like a serious mindfulness practice, and you know I want to stay present all the time. And so yeah, you're right. it's not it's not just like the dialogue used to be about problem drinking only, mm-hmm. and now it's much more about. Lifestyle and health and what you want in terms of your connection with others and yourself. So,
1: I think it's good to know that there's tens of millions of people participating in drinking less. That stigma is going away as it should. If you don't want to drink, you don't have to
2: identify as sober. You don't have to explain to anyone why you don't. You just just own it. Just be like, go up to your bartender. What do you have that's Mm non-alcoholic? And like, you don't have to answer any questions about why. All you need is a yes or no. If enough people do that, they're going to order things that are NA. And it won't be an issue any longer. We just need, I think, more people to be okay with their, and not scared of their decision to be alcohol-free. and represent that in public.
1: We have an opportunity now to make a new lounge concept that can be very desirable for society right now.
0: They've built a speakeasy behind the main cafe and host a monthly gathering for their club AF.
1: We can make new novel cocktails in those lounges that are like this is the new third, third space to go to. The, the third places is this phrase that's coming out about your first place is home, your second place is work, and your third place, like, where do you go? You know, and so, like, these new third spaces coming out, is, it's, it's a super exciting thought.
0: They're networking with people around the country who are developing alcohol-free spirits and mixers that are interesting to an adult palate. Josh and other alcohol-free bartenders are constantly coming up with new and tasty cocktails to serve a range of palates. Josh, Danny, and everyone I met at Ocean Beach Cafe are happy, upbeat evangelists with a vision for a future that doesn't center on alcohol in every significant moment of our adult lives.
2: It's not gonna happen tomorrow or 10 years from now or 20 years from now or maybe 30, but there's gonna become a point where like this huge percentage of Gen Zers and whatever the next generation is, never really even cared to engage in that alcoholic ritual in the first place and don't need an analog to it. Mm -hmm. So we're definitely on the upswing of a trend, And who knows, you know, it could totally evolve into something else that we're not seeing yet. But we definitely haven't reached the peak of it yet either.
0: Maybe we'll all live longer lives with more of our mental capacities intact. I'll raise a glass to that dream, one filled with a tasty, herby, bitter cocktail that's totally alcohol-free. I asked each of them my usual final question. In the end, what do they hope will be included in their eulogies?
2: that I made some sort of positive change on the people around me um, because of my biggest fear when I was drinking all the time is that, that I was um, not a good influence on, on anyone in my life. So to, to just have people look back and, and uh, remember me as somebody that uh, affected positive change on the communities around me.
1: Like around the time when it was in the news that alcohol ages you and people really started cutting back on it. There were non-alcoholic bars and bottle shops opening. Joshua James opened up Ocean Beach Cafe to be one of the first in the United States and then go on to travel and help others start such businesses so that that could bring these options and awareness to others So people got to live a little bit longer with a little bit more wellness in their lives and got to participate in a shift in drinking culture.
0: One last note before I go. If you're curious about recipes for alcohol-free cocktails, I'm going to start sharing them in the newsletter. I'll probably start posting them in other places as well but the newsletter is the best way to learn about whatever I'm up to, so sign up if you haven't yet. Just go to dyingkindness.com and look for the sign-up on the right-hand side of the page. Thank you for joining me today. If you know someone who could benefit from this episode, please share it with them. That's the best thing you can do to support me and my mission to change our society's reluctance to talk openly about death. Let's work together to not make it harder than it has to be. For more about all of this, go to dyingkindness.com. Today's music is by Blue Dot Sessions, and everything else was done by me. I'm Sienna Stewart, and I'm going to die someday, but hopefully not before I perfect an alcohol-free cocktail of my own devising. Today's death reading is Nostalgia by David White, from his book, Consolations. Nostalgia is the arriving waveform of a dynamic past, newly remembered and about to be reimagined by a mind and a body at last ready to come to terms with what actually occurred. Nostalgia subverts the present by its overwhelming physical connection to a person or a place, to a time in which we lived or to a person with whom we lived, making us wonder, in the meeting of past and present, if the intervening years ever occurred. Nostalgia can feel like an indulgence, a sickness, an inundation by forces beyond us, but strangely, forces that have also lived with us and within us all along. Nostalgia is not indulgence. Nostalgia tells us we are in the presence of imminent revelation, about to break through the present structures held together by the way we have remembered. Something we thought we understood, but that we are now about to fully understand. Something already lived, but not fully lived. Issuing not from our future, but from something already experienced. Something that was important but something to which we did not grant importance enough, something now wanting to be lived again at the depth to which it first invited us, but which we originally refused. Nostalgia is not an immersion in the past. Nostalgia is the first enunciation that the past as we know it is coming to an end.